Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through to 13. John, if we haven't met, you can find it on page 961 of the Church Bible, if you've got one, or follow along on the screen behind me. Starting verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. All right, let's, um, we're going to work through that passage there. If last week was bad timing uh, for Mother's Day, this week is good timing uh, as we're thinking about leadership. So let's pray and then we'll get into this passage together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, that we can join together again today and open up your word. Lord, your word is good and it's powerful. Um, your word points us to Jesus. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand uh, what your word is saying to us this morning. Um, and not just that, but how it applies and impacts all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the election is over. Um, but in the lead up to the election this year, I came across this article. Um, it said, young people, let's chuck it up, Paul. Young people care deeply about politics, even if they can't get excited about the election. Right, that was the article, and the article went about kind of going to show that point. Now, uh, it was interesting, they began by talking to this young guy who loved politics. Now, I don't know if you've come across someone like that before, uh, they're rare, but he was saying his experience of talking to other young people was that more and more young people just don't care about politics. Now, uh, he said this, this was his quote, not caring about politics is sort of in right now among some pockets of young people. It does have an edgy vibe to it. Now, I don't know if this is your experience with young people. Maybe it is. Um, maybe that's kind of what it seems. This article actually pointed out that uh, between the ages of 20, uh, 18 and 24, that one in three of them said that the last uh, election, if they didn't have to vote, they wouldn't have voted. Right? This is kind of the sense that we get that young people don't really care about the political landscape anymore. Now, on the surface, right, it seems like that's because young people don't get it. 
right? Like maybe you're a little bit older than, you know, that age group and maybe you're cynical of those young people because, you know, they don't understand. They don't get the political landscape. They don't get that, you know, politicians matter and leadership matters. That could be what it seems on the surface. But as we, well, as the article dug into it, the conclusion the article made was actually the complete opposite, right? They said young people do care They do care about leadership, they do care about policies, but they've given up on the political landscape. So why have they given up? Well, it pointed to a couple of things. Number one, it was because of the leadership that's been in place, right? They pointed to leaders who say one thing and do another, right? Character is a big thing for young people and they've been put off leaders who promise one thing and don't act on it which isn't unique to young people, right? I mean, we, we all kind of feel like that when leaders say and promise to do one thing and they do another. But the other reason, which I was kind of shocked by, despite me being in this age group, is anyone under the age of 30, if we voted in a politician or a leader, they failed to see out their term, right? Which subsequent, subsequently has led to seven leaders in 11 years, which if we can remember before that, the previous 11 years was just one leader. Now, my aim this morning is not to bag out on our politicians or our leaders. We were told last week to pray for them, to pray that they would lead us in a way that leads to quiet and peaceful lives so that we can live in godliness. Right? So my aim is not to bag it out, but to point to this conclusion from the article. Right? Because the conclusion in the article was this. When leadership stuffs up, people give up on the institution. Right? When, when leadership stuffs up, people give up on the institution. It happens in politics, but it might even happen more in the church. Right? When, when leadership stuffs, stuffs up, people run away. And so what I, what I want to do this morning is as we get to this passage, instead of you know, looking at how we can fix the political landscape, to ask this question of the church and of God, what does God want us to know about leadership? Leadership in the church. What does God want us to know about leadership in the church and how does that impact us? Well, if you do have your Bibles there, uh, this is where we're going today in 1, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we'll pick it up and we'll ask this question of this passage, what does God want us to know about leadership? We pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says this, Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever desires to be an overseer desires a noble task. What does God want us to know about leadership? Well, we're going to see three things today, right? Nice and simple, three things. Number one, the thing that God wants us to know is that they desire, they're getting into something big. It's a big deal, right? What they're getting into. It's a noble task, he says, right? Because whoever wants it, Whoever wants to be a leader of God's church, an overseer, the same word or idea as elder in the kind of parallel passage in Titus, whoever wants to be an elder desires a noble task. So why is it a noble task, right? Why is it a big deal? The the temptation is to think it's a noble task because we're going to receive glory, right? If you can be a leader of God's church, then you're going to get glory, right? Now, I was um, talking to a few people in the last kind of couple of months that were pointing to the fact that around the world, and even in our history, elders received lots of glory, Right, so Mikey was telling me uh, in the Chinese church, this was a big thing, that, that elders of their church receive lots of glory and honor. Uh, in some parts of America, this is true as well. But even in our history, 
Right in Australia, elders received glory. Uh, I was talking to um, Brad Jusen. If you remember, uh, he was a pastor at our church a few years ago. He's now in Gundawindi. And he was saying the remnants of this still live on. So he has one elder at his church. And yet on his stage, he's got 10 elders seats that he can't remove. Right now, we were talking about that. But, but the elders used to sit on stage and they'd get this kind of glory and honor for being a leader of God's church. So when we think about noble tasks, that could be the temptation to think it's about glory. But it's not. It's not about glory. Right? It's not a noble task because you receive glory. In fact, we're meant to follow Jesus and Jesus laid his life down. He went to the cross. Right? He died in a way that didn't kind of build himself up. He wasn't proud. He was humble. So our elders aren't meant to be, you know, these glory seekers. Our leadership's not meant to be proud, right? They're meant to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and lay their lives down. They're meant to point people to Jesus, not to themselves. So why is it a noble task? Why do they desire a noble task? Why is it a big deal? Well, I I think it's a big deal for two reasons. Firstly, because of what the church is. And then secondly, because of who established the church. Right? See, and we've seen this, right? We've seen what the church is in 1 Timothy so far. Remember, we began week one about how we are the mess. We are a group of people with our own baggage who come together. But the reason we're a church and not just some other random gathering is because we are united by the blood of Jesus. Right? Remember, we saw this. Paul said, Christ Jesus died for sinners of whom I'm the worst. The church then is the gathering of God's people who have been united by the single greatest moment in history, right? That Jesus entered into the world and died on a cross and rose again. So this is what the church is. It's the gathering of God's people united by the blood of Jesus, right? We saw it again last week. Remember, we have one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who who was the ransom for all. So this is what the church is. We are the united group of people, the united gathering, God's people who have been united by the blood of Jesus. Right? That's the first reason it's a big deal. It's a noble task. But the second is because of who instituted it. Right? Who, who kind of designed for us to meet together. And it was God. Right? God instituted. He established the church. And this is why it's a big deal. Right? See, again, we're not like a group of people who had nothing better to do on a Sunday. This is not like some elaborate plan so that, you know, parents can put their kids in kids' church and then have an hour off, right? That was not the design. This was established by God, right, to achieve God's purpose in the world. It was backed by God, right? So so we are united by God and established by God. We are the church of the living God. Right? In fact, God said of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Right? God established this thing. He backed this thing. He instituted this thing. This is God's. Now, I was challenged by this uh, recently at a conference where a guy called Matt Chandler was speaking. He's a pastor in the U.S. And he was asked what's been challenging him recently. And he was talking about his trip to Rome. So in Rome, he went to the Colosseum and a bunch of other places like that. Uh, And he was talking about the Roman Empire. So uh, historians would argue that the Roman Empire was one of the world's biggest superpowers that have ever existed. Right? Some would even say it's the biggest. 
right? They didn't have the technology that we have. They didn't have, you know, planes and cars and stuff like that. And yet they controlled so much of the world, right? They were economically strong. They had great military power. They controlled kind of Middle East through Europe and Northern Africa. It was a massive superpower. And in the 70 and kind of the 70 to 80 AD, they established the Colosseum. Right now, hold that institution on one hand. Then think about kind of 30, 40 years earlier when the church began. It was 12 guys in a room scared that people were going to kill them. Right? They locked the doors. They were afraid that something would happen. They didn't want to go out. They didn't want to spread the message. They were scared that they would die. Now, you got those two institutions Right, If you could kind of picture in that moment and, and think which of those institutions, the Rome, like Rome, the superpower, the greatest one that's ever existed, or 12 guys in a church, think about which one's going to go through history and flourish and reach the ends of the earth and continue to spread and grow. Right In that moment, no sane person would say the church. No sane person would point to those 12 guys and say, this thing's going to go. They would point to the superpower, right? And, and yet, here we stand in 2019, 1,500 years after Rome fell, and the church is still continuing, right? Now, why is the church continuing? It's because God backed it. Right? He showed up in this room. The resurrected Jesus showed up to these 12 people, and he said, right, you guys are going to be the church. And from this moment, you're going to spread into the world. And behold, I'm going to be with you as you make disciples. And you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And what do we see? That's exactly what happens. The church moves in power throughout the world. They spread and they flourish. And what we see along the way is that every human establishment and institution fades, but the church continues. Right? So, so this is why it's a noble task, because leaders of this thing is going, yes, I'm going to be a part of what God is doing in this world. Right? The desire to be a leader in this place is going, I'm going to be a part of what God has decided to back and what he's for, the institution, the church, which God has said, of this thing, the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, if, if we think about this, it's countercultural, right? Like our world right now does not think this about us. Right? I mean, we think about Australia right in this moment. A lot of people think that what we're doing is crazy. Right? Lots of people think that we could be coming up with lots of different, better things to do with our time and our money. Right? Our culture thinks this about the church. Many people think this about the church. And not only that, they think in the environment that, that we're in, in 20 years' time, the church is going to be dead. Right? That, that's what our world says about us and this gathering but they're wrong because this hasn't been instituted by men and women. This has been backed by God, right? And God has said, of this thing, it's not going to die out. No pressure, no persecution, no secular worldview is going to kill this thing out. No, the church is going to continue throughout history because it's been backed by the living God, of which God has said, I'm going to work in this space. I'm going to be in this space and I'm going to help this thing flourish. So, so this is why it's a noble task, because the desire to be a leader of this thing, they're getting into a big thing, right? God's thing, God's established church. So, so that's the first thing God wants us to know about leadership. What's the second? Well, we find this uh, as we keep reading. Verse 2, 
He says this, Now the overseer, or elder, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace into the devil's trap. The first thing God wants us to know about leadership is that the desire to get into the church, it's a big deal, right? What they're getting into is a big deal. Number two, the second thing God wants us to know about leadership is that there are big expectations, right? Since it's a big task, since it's a big role, there are big expectations for our leaders, right? And you can just sense that. The vibe from that passage is just kind of overwhelming in some sense, right? One thing after another to cover all of life, there are big expectations on our leaders. And the expectations, as we look at it, have less to do with competency and more to do with character, right? Less to do with competency and more to do with character. And again, this is countercultural, right? I mean, if you think about it, what our world is looking for when they're looking for, you know, job applicants or even when we're looking for a job, what people are searching for is competency, can you do the job you are being paid to do, right? It's about competency. In fact, I came across one of the worst job ads I think you'll ever come across. It was stuck on a window of a pizza shop, and it said this, apply today, now open pizza cook. Qualifications, number one, not be a crybag. Number two, master in SYM, shutting your mouth. I don't know who decided that needed to be an acronym. Number three, able to read schedule. Now, maybe, you know, you're in the business of employing people and you think this is not the best way to find potential. And it probably isn't, right? This probably does go down as one of the worst ads for a job in history. But you can see even in this, it's about competency, right? Be quiet, don't whinge, read your schedule and the job's yours, Right now, yeah, again, bad advertisement, but it does kind of show us in our world what people are looking for. They're looking for competency. We want people who can do the job, and if they can not whinge while they do the job, that's a win. But see, when it comes to leaders of God's church, competency matters, but it's not the most important thing. Character is king when it comes to leaders of the church. Character is the most important thing. And when we think about character, it's the leader's job to be the first in the pursuit of being like Jesus, right? Because Jesus was perfect in character. If we think about his life, he was the one who loved people perfectly. He said no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. Jesus was amazing when it came to character. He was perfect. And so our leaders are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. They're to lead the pursuit of being like Jesus. And then Paul fleshes out for us what that looks like, right? And you can kind of capture this by the words above reproach, right? Because he says the overseer is to be above reproach. And so there's 13 things under that heading of above reproach that we'll feel the challenge of and the weight of uh, for our leaders. Now, I should just say on Thursday night here at Southside, our elders had a meeting where we gathered together and we felt the weight of this challenge, 
right? We wanted to feel the punch of this and the sting of this and the, the challenge of this to be leading the pursuit to be like Jesus. And so we, we did that. And so what I'm going to do in a moment is actually just read out the questions that we asked of ourselves on Thursday night um, as it's going to help us get a weight of, you know, these things, what it means to be above reproach. Um, but also if you've maybe you've been at Southside for a little while and you're not sure, just to kind of let you know who our elders are here at church, I wrote them down so as not to forget anyone. And in alphabetical order, we have eight elders here at Southside. Uh, I was going to put a picture of them up, but I thought, better not. Number one, uh, I'm not going to go through order. We've got Ben Blake, uh, Dave Ankelmeyer, Don Galloway, David Kershable, myself, Dan McComber, Mikey Ty, who's um, he's officially an elder at our church, but he does his ministry at Sunnybank uh, as he has church planted over there, and Ross Wilson. So there are eight elders. If you want to know who they are after the service, I can point them out to you. Um, didn't think it'd be wise to put their pictures on the screen. Not that I'm scared, but, you know, just didn't really want to ask them about. It. So they're our elders, right, here at Southside. And the expectation for our elders is big, right? There's a high bar to do with character. So here's the thing. They need to be above reproach. And there's 13 things of what it means to be above reproach. Here are the questions, the things we thought through. Number one faithful to his wife. The ESV puts it, the husband of one wife. And the question is, has Jesus laid his life down for the church? Are we laying our lives, our lives down for our wives if we have them? Number two, temperate. Literally the word temperate there, the idea is vigilant. Love that word, right? Because it's, it's like, are we vigilant in what we're doing? Are we vigilant defending the truths of God? Are we vigilant in keeping our church on about our purpose, which we saw last week was to help everyone everywhere see Jesus? Are we vigilant in our own lives regarding our own spiritual vitality? Number three, self-controlled. Are we self-controlled to the urges of the flesh, whatever that may be? Are we physically disciplined? Are we spiritually disciplined? Are we disciplined? Are we self-controlled in what we do? Number four, respectable. This is the idea, are our good deeds obvious to those outside of us, right? We don't just want to do good stuff. We need to be seen to do good stuff because that's where respect is earned. Number five, hospitable. Again, literally, the idea is entertaining strangers, which I just think is kind of cool, and I'm pretty sure I spelt that wrong. But are we modeling hospitality? Are we welcoming people? Is that what we're doing? Are we hospitable? Lucky on this, spelling's not one of the requirements of being above reproach. Number six, are we able to teach? Not English. Are we able to teach in church? Are we constantly learning, studying, and, and stuff like that? Do we, do we know the truth of the faith? So we're going to see in a moment, deacons must know the truth, know the gospel, know the good news about Jesus. Are we able to teach it as well? Number seven, not given to drunkenness, not addicted to much wine, right? Are we in that space? I mean, that's self-explanatory, but, but is that what we are? Are we pursuing those ends? Are we getting drunk? Number eight, not violent, but gentle. So it's not just not violent. It's are we gentle, right? Would, would people describe our interactions with them as gentle? Number nine, not quarrelsome. Do we create unity or are we quick to, to quarrel or bicker? Number 10, not a lover of money. Are we generous with our money? Do we hold on to our money or are we modeling tithing and giving? Now, we're going to see in 1 Timothy, he has a lot to say about money and our leaders are to be leading from the front in, not, in being not a lover of money. 
Number 11, do we manage our own household well? Do our children obey and do so in a manner worthy of respect? Now, it's interesting the households back in the day weren't just like husband, wife, two kids. There was husband, wife, kids, and then you, you might even have servants and stuff like that. It's kind of the idea of a business almost. And so this is kind of where a competency comes in a, a bit here. Are we good managers of what we've been given outside the church? Are we good stewards with our own personal stuff? And then do our children listen and respect us generally? Like not all the time, that's the reality of kids, but generally do they listen to us? Are we good dads in such a way that's obvious uh, and worthy of respect? Number 12, not a recent convert. Oh, the idea here is conceited or proud, right? So none of our elders are recent converts, but the, the thing here is pride. So the judgment of the devil is to be filled with pride. Again, a spelling mistake, but do we think we're better than other people? Or are we leaders of humility? And then number 13, do we have a good reputation with outsiders? Right? So he talks there about the devil's trap. The devil's trap is to make people think the church is bad. Right to, to make people think that there is uh, the, the church is a you know not God's institution, not the place of the living God, and so are we men of character that makes God and His church look good, or God and His church look bad? Right. So so thirteen things there of what it means to be above reproach, and the idea is kind of like if you if you put the light on any one of our elders, any part of their lives, there would be an active pursuit of Jesus in those things. Right from you know not being violent and being gentle to to looking after our own family and our own household to not being a lover of money just kind of covers all things there and and what he's showing us is that there is a high bar right that there are big expectations for God's leaders as they lead the church right so so when we think about it it's a big role it's a noble task because it's God's thing it's God's institution he's established it he's gathered us together we are a part of what God is doing in this world. And the leaders are supposed to have big expectations on how they lead. And it's got more to do with character than competency. Now, interestingly enough, in 1 Timothy, as we keep moving, in chapter 4, 17 to, uh, 17 to 21, uh, it gives us guidelines on what to do when we think our leaders aren't doing this. We'll get there in this series. If you want to look at it now, you can, uh, or after the service, you can. But what we see here is there's big expectations on our leaders. Now, there's a couple of immediate implications for this. Number one, it's for our leaders, right? For our elders here at church, we need to feel the weight of this. We need to recognize that there are big expectations on us as elders to be leading the chase in pursuing Jesus, right? We felt it on Thursday. We need to feel it from God's Word again. Number two, when we're talking about submitting to authority, which we touched on last week, this is the type of authority, Right? So it's not abusive authority. It's not authority that's going to misuse their God-given gifts. It's the authority that is living up to this bar. Right? Not violent, but gentle. Gentle people. Right? Not lovers of money. All of those things above reproach in every way. And then finally, right, the, the third application of that is, since these men, since the elders of our church have a big role and big expectations, then the encouragement is for us as the church to be praying for our leaders. Right? To be encouraging them and praying them. So yes, I'm asking that you would encourage us and pray for us. Because we are, as the Bible calls, we are clay jars with treasure inside of us. We're still broken and sinful men who are leading the chase to be like Jesus, but we need your prayer. 
Pray that we would lead well. Pray for wisdom. Pray for grace on our lives. And pray that we would lead in such a way that doesn't point to us so that we have glory, but points to Jesus so that he has glory and, and so that the church continues to grow. Pray for us. Right? So, so what does God want us to know about leadership? Number one, he wants us to know that getting into a big thing, right? This is a big deal. The church is a, a big deal. It's instituted by God. It's a big thing. Number two, there's big expectations on our leaders. Number three, what does God want us to know about leadership? Our leaders are setting the pace, right? Our leaders are setting the pace. Now, uh, I was talking to someone recently about uh, how he entered into a 10K running race. So um, I don't know if you knew these things existed, but you can pay 50 bucks and you can enter into kind of a, a 10 kilometer race with other people. Now, it's not like professional, but it's not amateur. So it's somewhere in between. Now, to me, there's better things you can do with $50, but, you know, he was kind of talking about how it was fun and all that sort of stuff. You run on a course, whatever. But he was talking about how it was funny because there was this guy uh, in there that we, won, that we knew um, from our kind of history. We've been friends for a little while, and he was one of the guys at the front that set the pace. Now, I didn't know this, but in these races, um, you have... The, they nominate guys and men and women to run the race at certain intervals, right? And they wear balloons attached to them. So this guy that we knew was had the 40-minute balloon attached to him, and his aim was to run the race, so, you know, at 40 minutes. So if you're running as well and you want to get there in 40 minutes, you just stay up with the guy wearing the balloon. Now, if you didn't know that was happening and you watched that race, that's kind of funny to watch, like, some people wearing balloons along the way. Um, but, but the idea is, right, they are setting the pace for what it looks like to run at a certain pace, right? They're leading to show everyone else in that race what it means to run that race. Now, when we think of elders, I think this is kind of helpful, right? Now, we're not going to attach balloons to our elders. Not a bad idea, but we're not going to do that. But the reality is our elders set the pace but there is an implication there that the rest of the church, as the church body, we follow, right? So it's kind of like Paul, when Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. That's the model here for elders, right? They are to set the pace. They are to show us what it looks like to follow Jesus. But the rest of us as a church body need to follow in those footsteps. See, I know that when it comes to passages like this, the temptation is to zone out. Right? Like you hear, you know, stuff on leaders and deacons and, you know, whatever. And you're just like, okay, cool. I can have a sleep for 30 minutes and zone out for a little bit because this doesn't apply to me. Or maybe you're like, I know the lead, I know the elders. I trust them. Right? I know Ben Blake. He's a good guy. I don't need to listen to this. The temptation is to zone out. Uh, and I should just say, not just Ben, right? All the other elders as well. Uh, so the temptation is to zone out, but we can't afford to zone out. Right? Because our elders are setting the pace. And we're supposed to follow. See, the call on the elder's life is the call on all of our lives to pursue Jesus, to live godly lives because of the purpose of the church. As we do this, people will see Jesus, right? So our elders are called to set the pace, but we're called to follow. And this is kind of where Paul goes in the remaining of this passage. See, verse 8, he starts talking about deacons. And he said, deacons are to be worthy of respect. 
sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and a great assurance in the faith in Jesus. Right, just to, to highlight verse 13 there again, those who have served well get an excellent standing and a great assurance in their faith in Jesus. Those who serve grow in their faith, right, is what he's saying there. Now, now when we think about it, um, what Paul is saying is, is the call on the elder's life is the call on all of our lives. Now, deacons here is kind of not really clear what Timothy, what Paul is talking about. We don't actually hear that much about deacons throughout the Bible. Um, it, it's kind of a confusing thing. Is it an office? What is it? It literally means servant. We get some deacons in Acts who wait on tables. We're, we're pretty sure Phoebe was a deacon in Romans 16. We get one mention of it in Philippians and here four verses. You know, we could get caught up in talking about deacons, but we don't want to get caught up in what the word literally means because what we see here and throughout the Bible is that the elders are setting the pace for the rest of church. The call on the elder's life is the call on all of our lives. Follow Jesus. Right? That, that's the call on our lives. And you can see that what he calls deacons to is pretty much what he's already called elders to. Right? So, so if you serve, right, feel the challenge of this. Right? If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, feel the challenge of this. Live, verse 8, in such a way that's worthy of respect. Be sincere. Be authentic in your faith. Genuine. Don't indulge yourself in wine. Right? If you're a Christian, being drunk is not an option for us. Pursue Jesus. Don't pursue dishonest gain. They must keep hold, verse 9, of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Do we know the gospel with a clear conscience? Verse 10, they must be tested. Are we humble? Are we willing to take feedback? Verse 11 focuses in on the women, right? Are the women worthy of respect? Not malicious talkers, right? Women, are you vigilant in what you say? Are you trustworthy in what you say? Verse 12 kind of goes back to men there. Be faithful to your wives, but that's true of men and women, right? Be faithful in your families. Look after your kids. Love your kids. Manage your kids well. And then verse 13, those who do, right, gain a great assurance in their faith. See, see, the call for our elders is to set the pace, but the call for the rest of our church is to run the race as well, right? That we all actually need to step up the call to the call to follow Jesus, to live godly lives, now, why do we do this? Why do we take this stuff seriously? Why do we fight for this stuff? Why do we try and live godly lives? Well, I mean, firstly, because God calls us to, right? And that should be enough to recognize that the living God calls us to this. But secondly, because as we do this as a church, right, as our leaders set the pace, as our leaders pursue godly ends, as our leaders live up to the big expectation, and then as a church we follow, the reality is as we do this, as we live authentic, sincere, godly lives, we will help people see Jesus. Right? We will, if we can live up to this bar that God is calling us to, we will help people see Jesus. Right? We saw that last week. The purpose of the church is that people everywhere see Jesus. And here's the invitation, live godly lives so that you can take your part in this. Are you an elder? Are you a leader of our church? Set the pace, right? Imagine your life is a balloon attached to you. You're saying to the people behind, follow me as I follow Jesus. But then if you're not, if you're a part of this church, run the race as well. 
And as we do this, we'll help people see Jesus. Now, what's interesting, and I love when you find stats and information that back up what God's Word says, right? I just find that interesting. And this week, I stumbled across this infograph. So this is by a group called the McKindle Group, who did uh, some research in 2017 um, about some just the stats of religion in our church. Now, I know that some of that's hard to read. If you're getting distracted in the middle, it says there 1.5 million Australian adults don't know a Christian. Uh, one in 10 Gen Y are the same. There's some belief blockers down the bottom. You can um, search this when you get home, the McCrindle Group research from 2017. But I want to point to the top left up there, the top attractors to re- uh, religion and spirituality. It's such small font. You're just going to have to trust me that I'm saying the right thing. Number 12, uh, number three. So the bottom one up there, 12%. So things that attract them to religionity and spiritual uh, religion and spirituality. And we want to focus in on Christianity and Jesus. 12% said that what attracts them to faith is testimonies, right? So stories of changed lives. Coming in at number two, the thing that said 13%, what attracted them to spirituality, to Christianity, if we want to focus it in on that, said experiencing trauma or a life event. So, so when life is hard, when the world falls apart, they, they look for something bigger. But number, number one, coming in at number one, 16% of people said the biggest thing that attracted them to the faith was when people lived out genuine lives. Right? Isn't that amazing? The, the biggest thing that attracts people to faith is when we live sincere lives, genuinely following Jesus, authentically following Jesus, where we say, I follow Jesus, and then we follow Jesus. Where we say, we, we want to live up to this bar, and then we live up to this bar. This is what attracts people to the gospel. When we can, as the church, be the church, and when we can live up to the standard that God has called us to. It starts with our leaders, they're to set the pace, but as a church, we're to follow. And as we do this, people will see Jesus. So, so the invitation is there. The call is there. And so the challenge for us is to move out, not just on a Sunday, but to move out into the rest of our lives to live godly lives. Let's pray and ask God's help for this. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the challenge uh, and what our leaders are to do. But Lord, we know that the call on the leaders' lives of our church is the call for all of us to follow Jesus, to pursue Jesus. That, That when we say we're a Christian, to live up to the standard that you've called us to. Lord, we pray that our motivation for this wouldn't be guilt. It wouldn't be some kind of works-driven thing where we think if we can do this, we'll get your favor, but that our motivation for this would be the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. And then as the church, as the thing that you have backed and instituted, the thing that even the gates of hell will not prevail, we pray that you would help us to live up to this calling for the sake of more people everywhere coming to know Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.